Welcome to the Equestrian Connection podcast from WeHorse, the online riding academy. My name's Danielle Kroll, and I'm usually your host, but on this episode, we have a very special interview to end 2022. Christian is here with me, the co-founder and CEO of WeHorse, who you may recognize as the podcast guest on our last episode. Christian, you've been to Denmark recently interviewing the talented Catherine Laudrup Defoe. Tell us about it. Yes, Danielle. I've been to Denmark, north of Copenhagen, about one hour. This is where Catherine Laudrup Defoe is living. And she is one of the dressage superstars, team world champion, second and third in the current world rankings, and really an incredible person and athlete. And apart from her career success, Catherine embodies very much of what I think, and probably many of you also think, the dressage world's wants in a champion. Her riding skills, the love and understanding for her equestrian partners that eventually led her to become one of the best. And I think, Danielle, her story is not fully written yet. She is only 30. And um, this podcast episode is personally in my top five, and it has everything. Tears, joy, a deep talk. Uh, we talk also about the pressure she is under when uh, competing or showing everything that she is doing on a daily basis on social media. So it has a lot. And uh, yeah, I'm super excited that this is our Christmas episode, Danielle. Awesome. I know the equestrian world, myself included, is a really big fan of hers. So I'm so excited to listen. Hi, Catherine. Hi. We are here on your estate around 60 minutes north of Copenhagen in Denmark. Mm -hmm. This is where you live. Yes. Where uh, you and your wife um, have a stable with over 25 horses. You are double silver medalist of the World Equestrian Games. True. <laughs> What does dressage mean to you? Oh, that, that's a big question. But, you know, it's my life. And it's been my life for as long as I can remember. So it means a lot. It's um, it's not only my passion and what drives me every single day, but it's also like my life. It's a lifestyle. What's this fuel behind your passion? Uh, I mean, the fuel behind my passion is definitely sort of the partnership between horse and rider. It's not like the shows specifically. It's more the partnership you build like in between you and your horses And the fact that you spend more time with them than like the rest of the people you know in your life. So it's not necessarily the ribbons that are the no. end result. I mean, it's not at all the ribbons. It is the partnership. Yeah, if I should pick between you know no, normal daily training and shows, I'd pick normal training any day. So why even riding shows then? <laughs> yeah, you could ask yourself. <laughs> well, that's why I'm not riding like a lot of shows. I ride some shows, and I I try to be like like picky and like still having energy and like um, engagement enough to really go full on for those shows but that is why I'm not writing shows every single weekend because I'm not doing it for the shows so you're very carefully selecting if it yeah. also fi fits into the bigger plan yeah, with Olympics World yeah. Equestrian Games and these things and trying to like take care of the horses that I'm not you know, riding miles every single weekend, but I try to sort of spare them for the important things. You are not coming from a horse family? I, no. I think you started riding when you have been five, right? Yes, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, so a friend from school, she asked me one day, well, would you like to join me for riding? And I was like, no. No. <laughs> Why should I? And then somehow she, you know, got me with She her. insisted? Yeah, she insisted. And then I went to the riding school and... Um, I remember that I was quite hooked on it immediately. Not, not the riding part, but more like the grooming part, the being with the horses part in the stable. But she stopped quite quickly, but then I continued riding. But if you have been more interested in the grooming, when when did this sport aspect come into play? Actually, when I was quite young. Uh. I think, you know, maybe nine, ten years old, I really sort of figured out that I did want it I, I, I do wanted to com com compete and um, and also I remember when I was quite young I was already you know started dreaming about European championships and you yeah. started dreaming about the, the, yeah. those things I remember my daddy you know back home in a, our little kitchen he asked me one day well what do you really want with this riding like what what's your dream 
And I almost didn't dare to tell him, but I was like, well, one day I'm dream dreaming about doing a European Championships. And I might have been doing like... Doing or winning? Like doing, okay. just participating. Mm -hmm. And I think I was maybe 10 years old back then or something. And I did my first European once two years after that. How does it feel from from now, your team world champions for <laughs> champion, for instance, to look yeah. back on, on these times when that has been just a dream? No, that that's really funny and it's somehow a bit surreal that it really happened and that we are here like today. Of course, it's been like years and years of training and, you know, hard work, but it's fantastic that somehow we did it. We have also been talking before we started the podcast here for you guys um, that you are not coming from a horse family. Do you think that is, it's harder for you that you are not coming from a family that is familiar with all the routines and actually also the sacrifice and the hard work that comes into play getting on the level where you are right now? I mean, of course, it would have been easier if I came from a family like where mom and dad had, you know, done the Olympic Games 10 times together and all that. But at the same time, I feel really lucky because my parents, they they were just like fantastic. They sacrificed everything so that I could do my sport. And we teamed up with a really good trainer quite early in my career. I think it was something like 11 years old. And they always trusted him like a thousand percent. So when it comes to that, I feel that I've had like all the support that I could have, you know, because they just did everything they could, everything that they could to support me with the sport and, you know, trying to show me the right direction of like where to go and what to do. But of course, it would have been nice to have like a daily trainer back home, you know, with mommy or daddy mm. if, if they knew horses. But somehow they managed to do like a fantastic job putting me in a team that could lift that job. Providing the, the conditions, basically, for it. Eh? Yeah, and also, you know, they, they did everything they could, like, economically, yeah. to, to buy the best horses we could at the time. They spent all their money in giving me lessons on those horses we bought and for my trainer to travel with me around the world for shows. So they did everything they could to support me from a very early age. So how did it go on? You started riding on a certain competitive level when you have been yeah, 11, maybe, 12? No, earlier, 10. Earlier. Because I did my first like Danish championship when I was 10, I think. For pony riders. Yeah, and then I did my first Baltic and European championship when I was 11 or 12. Which is super early also. Yeah, it's quite early. Yeah. Yeah. Has that been important, that these early stages already pointed to that direction? Okay, it could be a bigger career. Yeah, I think also like talking about like pressure at a big championships you know I, i remember my first european in italy when i was 11 or 12 it was like well but it's the same class so I, i don't think i really realized that it was like a european championship so the fact that we started quite early with those like big shows made me sort of used to the pressure without really realizing that there was a lot of pressure on so that's you know that's definitely meant the world to the right arm uh, today and I've seen a picture that your mother has been holding a good luck teddy bear yeah. during shows. <laughs> yeah. Is that true? So, yeah, so since, I think, since maybe 2009, I don't know, around that year, um, this teddy bear, Gerd Dörich, actually a German, he's named after a German, um, uh, what's it called? One that raised, you know, a bicycle? Um, yeah, um, uh, Jan Ulrich. No, Is it Jan no, Ulrich? No, Gerd Dörich. Gerd Dürich. He did like, you know, court racing. Ah, okay. Yeah. So he's named after yeah. German. Yeah. So that's really funny. And he's been with us. It's an interesting name. I yeah, must I say. know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> It comes with a long story. Yeah. yeah. Um, but did you choose the name? Yeah, I choose the name together with some of my friends that, you know, were <laughs> in the game back then. And um, yeah, so that's like, and he's still with us the day to day. Yeah. Um, it's quite funny and he's is Teddy Bear still traveling to, oh yeah, to he your is. Really? he's traveling around the world and he's always with us at the court as well yes that's really funny still today the yes, good luck Teddy still Bear today. yeah that's okay. the only that's the only thing that we have to bring you know we're not like is it called superstitious yeah. about anything but yeah. that Giat he has to go with us yeah yeah I mean, and, and, and eventually it's those routines that also help you feel comfortable wherever yeah. you are. Yeah, it is. I mean, Ingrid Klimke, for instance, she's mm -hmm. she's carrying Cavaletti, three Cavalettis. 
Every time for a show. Every time, regardless where you are. She brought Cavalettis to Rio de Janeiro for the Olympics. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. So so I think everyone has their ritual, yes. basically. Yes, exactly. Basically. At, at what point did you realize, okay, this could potentially lead to a professional life in the equestrian world? Has there been kind of like this turning point or was this a coincidence? I mean, it was quite late on because I remember when I was maybe 20, I was sort of set on when I was finished with the U21, you know, the mm. young riders, I wanted to quit and sort of try to have a normal life in Copenhagen. You university. Know, university, be with the friends, go in the cafes, you know, uh, like just... Partying. Uh, yeah, exactly. But then I remember that it, it came, it really came closer to when I had to stop and I was like, well, that's not really going to happen. Um, and then when I finished high school my parents told me that I could, I could have like one gap year um and sort of to see if I could if I could really live from writing teaching you know basically what I do what I do today and then I knew that I had to start on quite early because if I should show them like within one year that I could live from it then I had to start on quite early mm -hmm. so already in the first year of the high school I started my old company called Do Fortress Ash mm -hmm. Um, started teaching, taking horses and training, um, traveling around, having clinics, you know, just started like on a very small level mm. for me to test like directly after high school if I could live from it. Mm. Is it worth it, basically? Is yeah. it worth it? I mean, it w it was my dream, but I didn't knew if I could, you know, really pull it. Uh, one of the, or probably the most important horse for you in your story and your in your career so far is Cassidy. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, he he's really the apple of my eye and without him I wouldn't be where I am I am today. And I'm really thankful to my parents because they decided that I could keep him if I wanted. We bought him in uh, 2010. Um and that was my last junior year. So when you have been 20 no, 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 I was... What, 20? Uh, your last junior year, 18. I, I was 18. Se 17, I 17. think. I was 17 or something. Yeah, uh -huh. 17, 18. And, um, yeah, we bought him. And then already, like, 30 days after we bought him, we did our first European Championship. Because my first horse at that time, he was injured. So, uh, well, we decided to try to give it a go with Cassidy. And I remember we went to Kornberg mm. um, in Germany and we came... Close to Frankfurt. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. At Linsenhoff's, Ann-Kathrin exactly. Linsenhoff, yeah. one, one of the German dressage legends. And the most fantastic European championships yeah. ever. And uh, with that said, Ama I've am Amazing facility. Everything is top-notch. The top whole notch. event was just out of this world. And at this time also home of Totilas. Exactly. I yes. remember that very clearly. So we came with no expectations and, you know, I've only had the horse for like one month, like just made the qualification like one week before at the Nordic Baltic Championships. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, well, let's just bring him and then have fun. Yeah. And I mean, I've been dreaming about having a European medal since 2005, where I did my first European Championships. Mm -hmm. And Cassie, he did it that year. Yeah. We came home with three medals, like one for the team and two individual. Yeah. So that was a really crazy start of our career together. And I mean, when when you're at the at the youth level, then then you feel okay. Probably there is more potential. There's more road to go. But yeah. it's very uncommon that you do it with the same horse. Yeah, I think he's he's the only horse in the world that has done that has taken a medal. You know, junior, young rider, and senior European exactly. the same rider. Yeah, and it was. I mean. We had like four gold medals for the young rider division at the Europeans. But the jump from PSG, young rider level, mm. to the big tour, that was way bigger than I could have imagined. We, I think we spent like close to two years to sort of teach him to do Piaf and Passage yeah. because that was not really in his body. So at some point I remember that we were like really doubting if he was ever going to make it to the Grand Prix. I did a few Grand Prix to 64%, like barely uh. piaffing. It was more like a little bit like <laughs> unsteady halt, <laughs> I'd say. Um, so it was like at that point we decided to bring Kura Kirklon into the team. Yeah. 
And she also a Finnish dressage legend. Totally. Yeah. And um, it was my old trainer, Rune Willem. He, mm. uh, he got in touch with her and he said, well, could you maybe come to his yard? And then it was mainly him and his partner riding. But then he sort of pushed me in as well with Cassie. Mm. And she gave us some fantastic tools for him to sort of find his Piaf and Passage. And, um, yeah, and then a few years later, we really got the hang of it. Mm. And, you know, took the big jump into the seniors division. Yeah. And what most people, I think, don't see, most consider it a straight line from a pre-Saint-Georges level to no. to um, to Grand Prix. Probably it's the biggest leap in the dressage sport it's from Intermediate 1 to Intermediate 2. And, uh, it it's crazy. And I remember I did, like, my first international Grand Prix in um, 2015 in October. And I came with my hopes, like, really high. And it was the World Cup in Denmark. And I thought, well, I'm going to make this, you know. I came as a you know, double European champion from the Young Riders division. And I ended up last. Mm -hmm. 64%, like really, like... What a lesson. What Wasn't a lesson. It? And that was like ongoing for some time, I'd say. It was really, it was super, super hard. Even though I could manage to do some of the Grand Prix exercises back home, it was something else, you know, taking that sort of collection, that sort of pressure with me into the ring from doing the Grand Prix, that was like, it almost felt impossible at some point. <laughs> yeah. What, what kept you going? I mean, the fact that my trainer, he was really, he really believed in me and Cassie. He did. And he tried his very best. And, you know, bringing in Kura to the team and sort of just, he was just behind me all the time. And he, he really believed in the fact that he could, you know, do the jump. So we just kept on training. And then I remember in, in I, I think it was in December 15, we went to Holland. And for the first time, I remember that I felt, well, today I rode Grand Prix. And I think we did something like 70, 71, uh, the three-star show in, where was it? Yeah, Somewhere in the Netherlands. Somewhere, yeah, exactly. And um, at that point, I said to Rune, well, now the Olympics might be realistic. And I think he was like, What? <laughs> What are you talking about? That was in 15 December. Yeah. And Rio de Janeiro was in, you know, July yeah. uh, 616. So that was um, that was sort of the beginning of the senior career. But we had a gap from 2013 where we won the second, you know, European gold medals. Um, 14 doing no shows at all. 15 trying to do a few U25 Grand Prix, riding 64, 65, you know, <laughs> barely making it. And then in 16, I really felt that I started riding Grand Prix. And that Cassie, he sort of understood, ah, this is Grand Prix. Do you think it has been one of the ingredients to your secret sauce together with Cassie that you have been together also for so long? Of course. I mean, and also the lesson that, you know, when we bought Cassidy, Andreas Helgestrand, he said, well, this is a super, super you know, a junior young rider horse, but he will never do the Grand Prix. And I was like, well, fine, because I'm not going to do the Grand Prix, so fine by me. But I'll, t I'll take him. I I'll take him. Be yeah. I mean, I was 16 or something, turning 17 years old, so it really didn't matter for me if he yeah. was supposed to be a Grand Prix horse because I was not supposed to ride Grand Prix. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I'm really grateful for what this journey has taught me because it has helped me so much with Bohemia and with Bamas because... So many people told me, well, Bohemian, he's never going to be a good horse. Well, Vamas, he's never going to be a top horse. But keeping in the back of my mind, you know, with Cassidy, that so many people told us, well, he's never going to do Grand Prix. I sort of just stuck to my gut feeling. Well, but I like this horse. I love to ride him every single day. Same with Bohemian, same with Vamas. They felt special. And then with time, with love, with practice, with plenty of lessons, you know, sessions in the training arena, suddenly, you know, you build up this partnership. And then, of course, they also showed, like, with time that they had quality to do the Grand Prix. And, I mean, Bama's world champion, Bohemian, plenty times European medalist. So, yeah, it really taught me that if I like the horse, if I like to take that horse out of the stall every single day, then I can make it to something special. Aren't those horses that no one or very few people believe in or that are special, also difficult, those horses that eventually can make the difference? Well, I do think so. Yeah. I like when they have like 
a special personality. Uh. I mean, I'm the same myself. I'm also uh. a little bit odd and different from many other people. So sort of, I sort of connect with them really well. Mm. And also with the with the special ones, you do have to spend more time with them to figure out what what is your brain doing? Mm. Like, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Why do you react like that? So you get to know the the tricky ones super, super well. You know, with the normal straightforward horse, it's like, well, he's sweet, he's nice. You don't have to use like so much extra time figuring out, figuring out like what's going on. Whereas with sort of with Cassidy, I mean, he was so afraid of big screens when he was younger, still day to day. So when I came back from that show in 15, where we ended up last, I took the telly from my apartment and put it in front of his stall because, you know, okay, well, then we are going to practice you standing in front of yourself riding a Grand Prix. Mm. <laughs> um, so you have to be sort of curious and a bit innovative, I think, to work around the problems that occurs with tricky horses. Why do you consider yourself in that context odd? Because I am odd. I mean, I'm like most other top athletes, I think. You do have to be willing to sacrifice a lot, like family, friends, normal life. I'm odd because I like being around animals. I find myself more like comfortable, more on the same level sort of with animals than with people. Sometimes, I mean, okay, horse people I can be around, you know, but with, <laughs> I'd say normal people, I often find it tricky to, you know, relate to the way they live their life and vice versa, I guess. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, us crazy horse girls and boys, we do have a special lifestyle. Yeah. And we are willing to sacrifice almost everything for our horses. Did you ever regret this sacrifice? No. Because I feel the sacrifice... Okay, I call the sacrifices. But at the same time, look how much I experienced. I mean, I've had so much more experience. You know, like I've I've seen so much of the world. I've traveled around. I've tried things that people in my age will never try in a whole like lifetime. So I call the sacrifices, but I've never doubted that it was worth it. But not that many people would be willing to sacrifice so much, I think. Okay, the top, top athletes, mm. but it is what it takes. Mm. This year at the World of CrossFit Games in uh, Herning, here in Denmark, Yeah. Um, it was Cassidy's last dance, so to say. Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, Tearful. Yeah, I can still like really like touch what I talk about today. So, yeah, that was really special. Was this also a turning point for you? Because now this horse that brought you all the way up, and of course you have Bohemian, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah and yeah. you have Vamos Amigos, yeah. which is no longer here um, with yeah. you. But um, Cassidy brought you all the way up. This must have felt like like a new era is beginning now, also for you. Yeah, I have to cry a little bit before talking about that. Yeah. I don't know why it always it always brings like tears to my eyes when I talk about him and you know the whole sort of all the years with him um, he's been such a big part of like everything that I've been in the sport and he's been somehow like a big part of my identity as a rider because he's been my main horse for Yeah, how many years is it? Like 13, 14 years. So, of course, it was like really, oh, thank you, a, a point of sort of no return. And it was really, really hard, you know, taking the decision that I was the last dance with him. But but at the same time, like years back, I've, I've had enough, you know, in, in a good way, man, that I, I was... I've had more and, you know, he gave me more than I could have ever dreamed of, dreamed of. So the last couple of shows, that was, that was for him, not for me, because if you see him now in the stall, he's just as fresh and, as, and crazy as he's always been. But it's, it's odd now because, you know, Vamas, he's not here anymore and Bohemian, okay, he's, he's, fan he's fantastic and he has way more quality than Cassidy, but Cassidy, he's just Cassidy. Mm. So it was odd, you know, I was crying the whole warm-up in Herning with Cassie for his retirement. Mm. Because, oh, it's the last dance and last time to go in. But at the same time, it was a nice, um, what is it called? It was a nice end of the 14 years. Mm. But yeah, it was odd. 
Definitely. And but it was nice for me to have him at at that World of Question Games. It was my first of Question Games, World of Question Games. And um somehow he just gave me the security. Or like he he made me feel home even though okay, I was nervous. I was still feeling new in the partnership with Vamas. Uh the decision with Vamas was taken like weeks before, like really close to the World of Question Games. So it was um it just gave me sort of a nice feeling having him on the showground being able to ride him a little bit in the morning before comfort comfort exactly but yeah it it it's been weird knowing that it's been the last time with Cassidy but at the same time I'm just proud and happy and it's really happy tears yeah. it's just hard for me to put words on what he has actually meant yeah. for me in the sport and in front of the home crowd Yeah. In a repurposed yeah. football stadium yeah, yeah, yeah. sold out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There couldn't be anything better probably for the last dance. No, exactly. And I just felt he was so, so happy. And he was just like, you know, he heard his music from the freestyle and he was just attacking it. Mm -hmm. And then the last, you know, laps I did with him in Cancer, normally I wanted to control him a little bit, you know, in the lap of honors because he yeah. wants to run like full mm -hmm. power. But this time I was just like, Well boy, you just run. Just run as <laughs> for as long time as you want. And that was just a nice sort of gift to give him. Just have fun. Do whatever mm. you want. How do you take on this challenge now uh, in developing new horses on this level or well, onto this level? Well, I think, again, talking about Vamas, it was, I'm so grateful for the fact that Pitchley, they allowed me to... The, 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 owners, the owners from uh, from Great Britain? Yes, the family Pitchley. They have allowed... To me to ride him for like four or five years so that was fantastic and in many ways it couldn't have ended in a better way than one gold and two silver medals at WIC um, and at the same time of course I was really sad that he left the yard but it was the plan from day one that I should educate a Grand Prix horse for Annabella and then at some point she should take off the reins and it was tearful and it was this and that but at the same time it opened my eyes to the next sort of projects in the stall. I, you know, it's it's a bit tricky to explain. I mean, I ride like nine horses a day. And of course, I use a lot of energy on every single horse. But when you have those two, three, four top horses, you can't put the same amount of work into all of them. I mean, okay, Vamas, he gets a little bit more, what is it called? Um time from us mm -hmm. the same with Cassidy the same with Bohemian because they need extra time extra management extra this and that whereas you know the seven years old coming up okay yeah he's he's just standing outside that bubble but it takes time and it takes like more oh what is it called like when one host goes out mm -hmm. suddenly your eyes open to say okay who's yeah. next in line okay Vividus That's one door closes, another opens. Exactly. That, that's yeah. just what I mean. You know, sometimes it takes that one door closes for you to really open your eyes to the next standing in line. Mm. And that was actually a, one of the positive outcomes of Vamos leaving. That now I've spent so much more time with Vividus, who is um, the seven years old horse we have in the stall. He's um, co-owned with the uh, family Sinklassen. Mm. who also happens to own Bohemian. So Rasmin and I and Family Singleson, we own him together. And he's really, he's just a fantastic horse. And in many ways, sort of a mix of Cassidy and Vamos. Like the hotness from Cassidy and the kindness and just easygoing from Vamos. So for me, he's really a super, super exciting horse for the future. But it's also, at least, I, I would feel it that way, that it's also a difficulty to stay on this world-class level. I mean, now you are um, world team champion. You have been uh, at the Olympics. You have been yeah. um, at the at the WAC, Europeans yeah. and so forth. It's also a difficulty to It keep is. these horses on the, or at least one horse on the world-class level. N name me five riders out there that have two or three world-class horses. You don't find that many. No, of course. And it's like in the beginning... Okay, it, it was a little bit stressful, but quickly I was like, well, I love educating horses. I've been in such a lucky position for a handful of years now, having two, three really top, top horses on the world ranking. But now, I mean, 
okay, this year is probably going to be a bit more quiet, but again, I don't do it for the big shows. I love the big shows, but I do it for the education of the horses. So at the same time, I mean, now I'm just taking my time with the youngsters, trying to pick and choose and to bring up the best one we have. And I mean, okay, I've, this year is the European year, so for me, I've tried the Europeans many, 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 many times. The coming year, 2023. Oh, sorry, yeah, exactly. the coming year, 2023. 23. So I'm like, I'm quite calm about it uh. I mean if I'm not going to do a European this year then I mean I I'm looking way more forward to Paris for example hoping the Olympics to bring a, the 24 Olympics. yes um, that's sort of my next big goal uh, 23 will be like a year for my young horses I think um, transition year so to say transition year yeah exactly uh. because I want to be like careful with Bohemian I want to like spare him for the bigger shows Um And I just want to spend time with the youngsters, like giving them all the time I can, you know, really maybe even try to aim for um, doing my first world breeders with some of the youngsters. Mm -hmm. Because normally I always prioritize the senior championships. And that's why I haven't done, you know, the, the world breeders at all. Yeah. Because I've told the owners, well, I can do the qualifications, but it's always almost on top of each other. So I want to be focused enough for the seniors. So the World Championship of Young Dressage Horses held in the Netherlands and in Germany, I think, biannually. Yeah. yeah. But it's like, it's, it was, it's sort of been like in the second row yeah. all the time. Whereas this year, I might be open to, you know, prioritize that as the most important show this year. If I can, I have like some really nice, interesting young horses. And next year, you could, could be the year for them to shine yeah. instead of always having the Grand Prix horses you know, in front of everything. And it's eventually also where we make full circle. We talked about it partnership. Is. Yes. And it's it's not eventually about the medals. It's more about the partnership you develop over time. And if you happen to reach the highest goals... Then it's nice. Perfect. Yeah. But it's not necessarily the prime aim. No. At first. It's not. Uh. Mm. What's really cool about you, I think, is that you are super relatable on social media and you and your wife, Resman, uh, yeah. you take people really into your daily life. Um, do you actively pursue this or has it just been by coincidence? I mean, from day one when I started my Instagram account, it was meant to be a source to um, young, for young riders to be inspired, to find motivation to get like some sort of small training tips maybe um, because I found that you know this was maybe in I don't know 14, 15 and I was so annoyed that no one was ever like opening you know up just a little door to show well this is how I've done you know you could see that Isabel that Dushading that so many writers they were doing like a fantastic job out there but how the hell did they get there? yeah, yeah. You know, as a young writer, you were like, okay, I can see that they are like 20% better than me, but how? So my whole like um, thought about starting an Instagram was to open up for doing small like training tips, showing people, well, this is my journey. This is the way I've done it. Not necessarily the, the, the way of doing it, but my way of doing it. Um, so it was meant to inspire younger writers And throughout the years, it's um, like one thing is that it's grown quite a lot. But also the whole like social media world has changed tremendously. Um, it's so much harder posting like real training videos now nowadays because the amount of hate you get is crazy. Um, and I find that a pity because I I really want to be open And I want to show the not perfect snaps as well. But when you show something that is not perfect, when you show the process, when you try to be open about normal training, there's so many haters out there. Mm. You know, going crazy about the horse being like one inch behind vertical, the horse being a little bit too low in the pole. You know, it's, it's, it's quite heavy actually. And I find it a pity because then what has happened to also my own Instagram is that it gets a little bit too polished mm. to what I would have preferred. Do you have an internal barrier of posting reality? 
Exactly. And like sometimes I just break those barriers and say, well, I'm just going to post a video, yeah. this video showing a young horse, you know, schooling Piaf Pesas, one Tempis or whatever that are not perfect. But it takes a certain amount of courage. Is it called that courage? Mm, yeah. It's courage, yeah. Courage to do it. Because you know that there's going to be like haters out there, you know, chasing you down, posting your video like again and again and again where the horse is not perfect. Mm. And dressage is also, you know, it is, I don't know if I would call it political, but it is also a, an act. When you go into the ring, it's an act. You have to look like everything is so controlled, like everything is just so perfect. But sometimes you do have to like put a little makeup mm -hmm. on some things. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's a pity that you, at least that you don't, that I don't feel that I can be totally honest about, you know, showing my bad trainings as well. Because I know that that would be super inspiring. And it makes you human. Makes me human. And I know that it would... Because I remember how it was back then. I had like so many tough trainings where I felt, oh, it's so tricky. It's so difficult. And you know what? It, st it still is. But it's so hard for me to show my follower scar that. Because then I know that people are going to hate me for it as well. But it's a pity because dress house is not just, you know... Then it's Piaf Pesas. It's like years and years of training, partnership, exercises going wrong, doing it again, going wrong again, doing it again, and then suddenly it clicks mm. when you see Vamos do Piaf and Pesas. It's like that's the end result of years and years of hard work. And I, I just find it so like harmful to the sport that it's so tricky to show the unpolished reality but that's nevertheless how it is nowadays what does this hatred um, do to you is that besides that you are no longer showing or you are showing less of showing reality um, how does this affect you well it, it makes me sad first of all because yeah. I really try to I mean both me and the whole team we do everything we can for horses every single day we put them first like in every sort of situation it's always the horses first and the horses welfare first and we love them to bits so when people call me like horse abuse you know they, they tell me like shitty things about how i um how i am around my horses or that i train them in a bad way it it makes me sad And I think that people who write those like really shitty comments, they forget that it's a real human mm. sitting on the other side, reading those comments, taking it in. I mean, okay, w through the years I've sort of learned to put up a barrier and I'm not really taking the comments in anymore, but it makes you way more like, um, what is it called? Careful. Simply to protect yourself. And now when Rasmin is in it uh, as well, We try to protect ourselves a little bit. And I think it is just a pity because we are actually some of the people that would be open for opening up the doors like 100%, showing the real deal. But we don't, we don't dare to because the hate that could follow with that could potentially be like crazy. Does, do you think the equestrian world should have a louder voice in this discussion and, and stand up against this? Because eventually it's, it's going against the fact that horses are domesticized and to be worked under a saddle. Yeah, yeah, I know. And that's like, that's why I find the discussion so hard because I know that the, the hardcore haters, they think it's abuse just the fact that we sit on them. So I feel that it's it's a lost battle, no matter how and when and where we put it. So that's why I think that, that we are very few that stand up in this discussion, because somehow we know that it's lost already before mm. we open our, our mouth. Yeah. Um, but I think it's it's what is important is to tell the good stories, to tell that and to show that we love our horses beyond anything. We put them in front of our family, in front of our partner, in front of like everyone and everything. We try to really do everything we can for our horses. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we do ride on them as well. Yeah. So it's just about... 
and it's also your profession. Yeah. It's 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 not only the act of riding yourself, uh, riding on the horse itself. It is also your your your, your profession. And eventually, if if you theoretically were a horse abuser, you would never have any success in this world. You it's impossible. Have, it's impossible. It's yeah. impossible. And I mean, if people saw a horse like Cassidy, if he's not, you know. If we don't work him, if we don't ride him, if we don't like make him do the his favorite tricks, you can tell that his mood is going down like quite quickly. He loves working. He loves dressage. Even now, I mean he turns 20, and the best thing he knows is to be allowed to do like a long row of one ten piece. Mm. Just having fun, just training. He's like his ears forward, like from the first second. He hates when it's just like hand walking and you know, he's retired, yeah. But he still loves to do the job. So that's what people, they, they don't get it. Most horses in, the, in this sport, they live and breathe training, yeah. shows, doing the tricks because they love it. Yeah. They, are, they are bred to do it. And we have over a thousand years of breeding history in yes. Europe. Uh, if, if you would um, open all the stalls here and, and, and let them free... They would stay in. <laughs> they would stay in. They would not go out. No, they would stay in. And yeah. they would, okay, they would maybe go out and look, but they would quickly find their yeah. stall again and, hey, 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 ring with the bell for food. Yeah, m m maybe in summer on the pasture for, for an hour and then they come back. But, exactly. but But that's it. That's it. Yeah. But, yeah, but I find it's a very tricky discussion and I know that we ha do have to develop our sport all the time mm. and I'm all for that that we constantly try to improve the way we treat them, the way we maintain their life as, as horses as well. You know, going on the field, having lots of time of, like under open sky and all that. I, I'm all for that. But I also love riding and I know that our horses love that as well. How do you assess the future of the, of the equestrian world? I mean, we're talking about now... Um, what people now tend to call social license. I know there are discussions in the United States with the federations, I think among European federations, do we still have the license to be socially accepted? Um, how, how, how do you see the future 10 years, 15 years? I mean, you are 30 now. You're going to be for decades in the sport. Hopefully. Hopefully. Um, what do you think? Where do we stand 2030, 2040 and down the road? Not only on this discussion, but, but beyond. Well, no one can tell, but I do think it's important that we stay open-minded and that we dare to change the sport, to be open-minded, to take in like new things, you know, get along on the, on the sort of developing of the sport. Because I know that dressers and horse riding, on all terms, it's very traditional. And we have many traditions that we want to stick to. But at the same time, we do have to develop to, to be able to still have our sport, you know, in the Olympic Games, you know. And again, that, that we're not having our rights to ride the horses taken away from us. Mm -hmm. So in that way, we, we have to develop as riders, as, you know, trainers, as people in the sport. We have to constantly develop and, you know have the willingness to, to, to go among on this development, uh, development as well. It's actually, as you now um, say this, um, it reminds me this discussion a little, about, a little bit about the Football World Cup in Qatar. Uh, because everyone has asked the Danish national team, the German national team, the Americans, the, the, the British national team to stand up against the fact that the World Cup has been given to Qatar. Yeah. Um, and everyone is expecting them to have a voice and to make their, their voice heard. Here it's kind of similar. Now, as you say this, it pretty much reminds me of this discussion also a little. No, but uh. it is true. And it's super hard for us riders, just as for the football players, uh. to know exactly what to say. Uh. I think the most important thing is that we stay open-minded. And even though we know that there's some crazy discussions going on, you know, for example, with horse welfare, we do have to listen and to change where we can because otherwise our sport is going to die, I think. Mm. So I think it is important that we really try to go along, you know, on the development 
and see where we can change things so it gets like more and more on the horse's terms. Mm. Still trying to stick to some of the traditions that also makes our sport. Who keeps you inspired? Who are your heroes in the equestrian world? Um, Kira, she's a big inspiration for me. Kira Kirkland, your yeah. trainer? Yeah. I mean, she comes from like not a horsey family at all and she's sort of just built up this like crazy imperium of like crazy many fantastic results but that's one thing of her person but Kira the human is just fantastic I mean the way she's she's so curious you know every time she comes to my farm here she has like a new little trick that we have to play with even though she's 60 plus she's so curious she's so open-minded and she's constantly using her brain to figure out new things of you know explaining the horses how to do that exercise in an easier way and at the same time even though she's such a complex trainer and rider she makes it so simple the simplicity like it's it's amazing how simple she can explain things so from if I should pick like any rider in the world, any trainer, it would be it would be Kira. Of course, also naturally, Susan Wittgenstein, my other trainer, she inspires me a lot as well. But she just she has like less experience than Kira. Obviously, she's 20 years younger. Those two ladies, they inspire me a lot. The way they've made their journey to the top sport, coming from fairly normally families, bringing up really normal horses to top sport. That is truly inspiring for me. And then I always mention mm. Isabel Vert. Yeah. Because there's one thing about her that I it admire like crazy. And it's sort of the fire in her eyes. Every time she canters around the edge, you can just tell that she wants to win. And that's fantastic. I mean, she's been traveling since she was so young. She's won everything possible so many times yeah. and yet she wants to win yeah. and I think what's also interesting about um, Isabel and um, she has been um, in our podcast and she we talked about this lengthily how she chooses horses and it reminds me a little bit of you because it's not the obvious top star horse exactly that eventually wins the golden medal no. and and it's having the feeling in your fingertips, okay, this could be this high potential horse yes. no one else sees. Yes, exactly. And and that's what you've seen so many times with Isabel. Mm. When you see her in a small, do you think, what is she going to use that horse for? I mean, it's mm. like this and that. And then suddenly one years later, boom, 80% Grand Prix. Yeah. And you're like, how did that How happen? is that possible? How yeah? is that even possible? But that's exactly what I mean, you know. Not necessarily because Andreas doesn't like a horse for Grand Prix or Isabel, then it might fit me. Yeah. And that's the, again, coming back to the partnership. You do have to love spending time together. You do have to love riding together every single day. You do have to love the fact that you have to figure out the horse's brain and sort of find out why is it doing like this or that. And I think that's the, I hope that I have some of the curiosity that Isabel has had throughout the years because she must have been like really curious, really open-minded to developing the not obvious talented horses. Yeah. And it's also, I think it's kind of like a puzzle, you know, putting one piece together and then it starts to make sense, right? Yeah. And then yeah. um, everything evolves from there. Exactly. Yeah. You are now here in Denmark as... Um, number two and number three in the world rankings, which is also <laughs> very cool uh, yeah, to is. be uh, with two horses in the top three. Yeah. Um, one of the superstars super of the sport. Um, do you also reach into, or do you have contact to people here in Denmark outside of the horse world? Is, is that something wh where you get more influence or more limelight now? I mean, um, when I met Rasmin, the sort of... Um, the spotlight in Denmark outside the Husi world sort mm -hmm. of expanded a little bit um, and for me that's not necessarily a good thing mm -hmm. 
it's been really good for the sport that we get like more media time, more interest from normal medias. But for me, the whole like spotlight thing, that's the backside of the medal for me. Because mm. it's hard, you know, it's hard being recognized by normal people. It's hard having to do like autographs. Are you being recognized on the streets here in Denmark? Yeah, yeah, not like in a bad way at all, no. but, but we are recognized from normal mm. people as well, like in like more and more. Mm. Rasmin, she's been used to that um, spotlight since she was small because of her family name. You know, her father was a, was a really famo- famous football player. and um, Brian Laudrup? Yes, and the Laudrup family, they are very like famous in Denmark. Known for very good things, so it's mm. because people like the family. So she's sort of been used to that sort of spotlight from the media's wanting to know what she's up to and all that. But that was something new for me. Um, and also with the with the increasing result, it's more like heavy from the Christian world, the interest, but also from the normal medias. And that's something new for me. I mean, I found it very positive for the sport that the interest in is increasing and that we get like more time in the media. But it's it's hard and it takes time for you as an athlete to do interviews like today, interviews mm. with the te- with the telly. Um, yeah, you know, just did you do some training, like media training or, or anything? No, 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 I never did. Oh. I've been practicing a lot, you know, throughout <laughs> interviews, like looking at myself and thinking, "Oh, why did I say that?" You know, and social media probably also helps because you have to control what you eventually say and and also be yeah. on a certain level professional in front of a camera. Yeah, true, and also, um, yeah, again, it comes back to that. I've like since day one with the medias, I've. I wanted to be as much Catherine as possible. Mm. Um, I really want to be open-minded. I really want to be like real. I want to show the real deal. Mm. Um, and I think that's just that's been my goal since day one to be as. Of course, I want to be polite and nice, but that's also how I am as a person. I try to be nice. I try to be polite, but yet showing the the world what's what it takes behind the the curtains as well. At the end of um, every podcast, we have the four classic WeHorse questions. Yes. And they are now also waiting for you. Oh, bring it on. Um, and um, question number one is, do you have a motto or favorite saying? Yes, it is. I mean, I've actually been living from um, like one motto for many years. And it is, if you can dream it, you can do it. And I know it's a little bit of a cliche, but actually I have been a big dreamer since I was really, really young. And I've happened to be super lucky to achieve like many of those dreams like throughout the years. So I really live from it. If you can dream it, you can do it. Then question number two. Who has been the most influential person in your personal equestrian journey? Oh, that's really hard to pick one. Um, I think I have to name a few. <laughs> from from the early days, my my family, of course, because they are the ones that has made it possible for me to even enter the Christian world. So the the tremendous support from my family has been has meant the world. But then in the later days, I mean, of course, my wife Rasmin. She is sort of, she's really been fantastic since the day she came into my life. She's made everything possible here in the everyday. She supports me and she has supported me since day one. But also she has like for the first time in my life, I mean, this is equestrian, Catherine. I've spent my whole life developing like, the person Catherine within the equestrian. And building this personality, right? Yeah, you know, within the horse world. But not until Rasmin she came into my life. I've spent time, you know, developing the real human version of Catherine, like outside the horse world. So I'm like really small, like Catherine is really small actually. But she's tried to sort of make me bloom as a person as well. And open my eyes for the fact that it is possible to 
try to find that life balance as well. Even though she's like, okay, cool, you want to be the world number one, but should, could it maybe help you to have, you know, your person, Catherine, on the side as well? Mm. And that's just so true. And I'm really thankful for the fact that her and her family really helps me, you know, developing that side of my personality and of me, you know, at the same time as they support me on the journey to become number mm. one. That is the eventual goal. Yeah. No, <laughs> it's not the eventual goal, actually. But now I've been number two and three, so I guess that <laughs> at some point it's okay to dream about, you know, being the world's number one one day. Uh. What do you think? What does it? Um, what does it take to become number one in the world? It takes so many things. It takes courage, bloody hard work, and also a little bit of luck as well. Uh. Timing. Timing is a thing. Timing is a thing as well. You know, it is really. But again, it comes down to that little bit of luck as well. Of course, you have to be super, super skilled. But you know, all the riders in top five, top ten in the world, they are super, super skilled. They are fantastic riders. They all have fantastic teams back home. But it comes down to the timing and to that little bit extra bit of luck and glitter yeah. on top. Yeah. I mean, you, you still have, among those in, in the top ten at the moment, you are probably the one that has the most time compared to the others. Of course, you need to have the horse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but, but relatively... Yeah, Jessica from Bredo Vandal. She is mid thirty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's see. <laughs> Question number three. Yeah, if you could give equestrians one piece of advice, what would it be? The most important thing for me, like throughout my whole career, has been my team, my main team. Without my main team. I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't have survived like throughout the years. So I always tell like young riders coming up this that you do have to you have to build yourself a strong team. And it varies from rider to rider what a strong team is. For me it's been like from an early days my parents, my trainer and my partner. Now it's changed a little bit because my family is not such a big part of it anymore. But it's my trainer, it's my partner, and it's, you know, maybe a manager, a go-to person, which is now Natalie for me and mm -hmm. Cura. Because that's my sort of inner circle. You know, People the, that can also give advice, experience advice. They can, they can give you, like, the best advice that you can get. I have my partner to rely on, to fall back on, you know, she's my rock. And then, of course, like my, my chosen family, um, the ones that, you know, make sure that Catherine, the person, is all mm -hmm. okay, is all also doing well, you know, under the pressure that it is to be in the position I am. Mm -hmm. But the team, build yourself a team that can help you and that you can rely on. Actually, it's a good piece of advice, regardless if you are an Olympic athlete or just a leisure rider. It actually doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It takes a good team around you to support you to be in this sport. Yeah. You can't do it alone. Yeah. I'd say it's impossible. Question number four. It's actually not a question. You need to complete a sentence. Oh. For me, horses are? My life. The passion of my life. Cool. Catherine, I have one more topic actually here on my list, yeah? which I forgot to ask. You are now also into fashion. You have your own fashion collection. <laughs> yeah. Is that yeah. true? Yeah. <laughs> we, well, we call it a, like a merch collection, merchandise. Yeah. Um, it's actually... On, on, on the verge to becoming a fashion collection. <laughs> well, of course we want to make something that we like to wear ourselves as well. Yeah. And we are quite chill and that's why it's a tracksuit. You know, and sweatpants. And yeah, it's like a tracksuit, you know, yeah, the sweatpants and you know, a hoodie yeah. and like relaxed, chill clothes that you can yeah. wear like anywhere. And it's actually because our followers, they've been asking us for like maybe two years now, could you please just make some items so that we could support you and we could support you and Rasmin. And then we are teamed up with a with an agency now, yeah. with the social media thing. Um, and they said, well, should we help you to, you know, 
put you in contact with someone that could produce, you know, just a little collection of merch, fashion, yeah. whatever you call it. And just a few weeks ago, we, um, yeah, we, we produced this and, um, and we went on air like only a few days ago and it's almost... Already sold out. Yeah, it's crazy. And it's just, somehow that feels really odd yeah. because I was like, but do people really want to buy like things with our names on? But it's crazy. Obviously, yes. <laughs> but the support, it's, it's crazy, I tell you. It's, it feels surreal that people, they are giving us this, this sort of support. And it's fantastic. And it feels like a big hug, you know. We love you guys. We just want to support you. So that's been really fun. So uh, the second batch needs to be produced soon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I actually talked to the, like, the, the company that produces uh, the things for us like uh, yesterday. And he was like, are we going like, are we gonna, like, continue? What are we doing? I was like, I don't know. We need advices. But I think we definitely have to um, make a second batch or a, like, renew some of the things already uh. now. But yeah, really, thank you guys. It's been fantastic to feel that love. Cool. Yeah, it has been uh, quite a ride. Thank you so much. Um, the journey so far, I must say, probably uh, the story is not written fully yet. Let's hope not. Let's hope not. And yeah, all the best. Thank you, Catherine. And thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Equestrian Connection podcast by WeHorse. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to us if you could leave us a rating and review, as well as share us on social media. You can find us on Instagram at wehorse underscore USA and check out our free seven day trial on wehorse.com, where you can access over 175 courses with top trainers from around the world in a variety of topics and disciplines. Until next time, be kind to yourself, your horses and others.